Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. My guest this week is Jim Mallison. Jim is a friend of mine. Many, many, many of you know him already. He's part of the Sky Safaris legends, Eddie Colfax and Antoine Laurens and, and John Sylvester. I did my first tour with these guys back in 2009 when I was just a pup in beer. I came back in 2011 when I was still just a pup and did my first big bivvy, which set off all the bivvies to come with John Sylvester. An amazing flight we did over the back and landed in Manali and slept in the ice and then flew back the next day. Back then, of course, Jim was dreaded out. He has lost those. We'll talk about that. He had dreads for most of his life because of living as a sadhu. A sadhu is someone who's kind of renounced the worldly life. He would spend as much as six months of the year in India. His enchantment kind of got got hold of him with India when he was 18 and spent a great deal of time there and did spend that six months a year every year until COVID hit. But lived as a sadhu, which is uh, basically just wandering around, not doing a whole lot, and then would come back to uh, Oxford in the UK and pursue his academic career, which is boisterous to say the least. He's written nine books. He's the leading expert in Sanskrit, has uh, translated documents that go back literally thousands of years. He's now a professor, as of September 1st, will be a professor of Sanskrit at Oxford. He is a sir, a doctor, a professor, a mahant, a bayonet. Some of those I don't even know what that means. I had to look up a lot of words before I sat down with Jim and and talked to him about his amazing career. Just fascinating. We talk about all kinds of really quite wild subjects like dissolving the mind. We talk about culture and what Western culture maybe has right, what it has maybe wrong, mental health, and just his incredible, I'm going to say it, although he doesn't like this word, you'll learn about that at the end, his incredible journey of uh, through academics and also flying, of course. He's done some pretty amazing things in the Himalayas. And we talk about some of his more recent exploits because of COVID in the UK. And just a blast. This was a little intimidating sitting down with someone who has so much academic credentials, but uh, we had a lot of fun and I know you will too. Enjoy this talk with Sir Jim Allenson. Jim, I feel like we've been trying to do this for years potentially it's been a long time since i've seen you i think where we need to start is the loss of your dreads <laughs> you look a lot different my friend what we were just talking about in the opening uh you've had them for over 30 years is that right yeah that's right well yeah well, it was right until four years ago indeed yeah i cut them off in beard actually the little temple you know going up to take off walking up uh, yeah, that was October 2019. And so, of course, then there was a global pandemic and there's still plenty of people I haven't seen. So I'm still bumping yeah. people regularly going, hey, what the hell happened? Yeah. yeah. Have you been able to keep up your your going to India every year through the pandemic no. or did that get shut down? Have you broken your record? That got shut down and then I got really jinxed. I was hoping to get back to beer in October last year. And then there was some fight between the UK and India over visas. 
so oh. I, I couldn't go. I had to postpone the trip. And then I was meant to go in March, and then my aunt died, and I had to cut the trip short. And anyway, so it feels like I've been slightly jinxed on on going to be. And I'm and now I've got a new job as well, starting in October. So I won't be going this autumn. Anyway, I'm hoping to go out next spring. Fingers crossed. Third, yeah. third time lucky. Third attempt lucky in in a year or two. Yeah. Well, take us back to. 88. I've had a fascinating and very interesting and fun morning reading all about you on Wikipedia and and everywhere else. And I knew a fragment of this stuff, of course, when we spent our time together in in 2009 and 2011 in beer. And we will talk, of course, about your flying exploits and the North-South Cup and guiding and the Sky Safaris and John and Eddie and, and Antoine and Debu and everybody. But and those of you who listening, those are all names I would imagine you've you've heard of at least in passing. But uh, I, I would love for us to go back to, I don't know if it was before eighty eight. I think you would have been eighteen, so around there. I read that Rudyard Kipling was your inspiration. You read Kim, and you and you decided I'm going to. This is pre college, I imagine. You're, I'm going to India. What was the what was the fascination there? How did India just take hold? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of with hindsight, the Rudyard Kipling thing. I don't know if that was really in my mind at the time, but I did have to read it at school. But then in, in England uh, or in the UK, what we often have, people will sometimes take what they call a gap year between school, which I always get confused. I think you call that high school in the States. And then anyway, yeah. we call it school and university. So at age seven, I was, I was young. I left school at 17. Uh, and I was like, you know, what am I going to do in my gap year? And through a, a weird uh, succession of, of coincidences, whatever you call it, I decided I was going to read Sanskrit at university, which was already quite obscure. And then a friend had come back after his gap year in India and regaled me with stories of the wonderful time he'd had wandering around. And I just put two and two together and thought, right, this is it. And I went off with a good friend from school. And he's now a professor of Indian philosophy in a university in Delhi. And I'm a professor of Sanskrit at Oxford starting in September. So it kind of messed up both our lives. Here we are, you know, 35 years on or whatever. That one trip to India, like, completely set the tone for the the rest of our lives. And can you put a finger on that? What was it? Was it the the language? Was it the people? Was it the religion? Was it Hindi? Yeah, it was a mixture of everything. You know, wandering around. You've been there. It's so great. I think it was, I think, you know, I... I, I'd done Latin and studied history at school and it's the way in India they've got this ancient civilization which is still still going on still manifest so you can you know read all these old texts and so forth and uh, it's it, you can see a continuity today and in particular I got into also hanging out with all these uh, crazy ho- wandering holy men you know that happened in my first trip actually up in the Himalayas it was at the base camp of this trek up to this uh, this huge ice this uh, stalagmite in a in a cave called Amarnath up in Kashmir and I couldn't actually do that because my visa was running out but I spent a few days hanging out with all these wild chill smoking bubbers uh, who were camped out at the foot of the mountain and I just thought this is this is wild this is great they kind of you know I've so I'm I'm 53 now I was born in 1970 so I in the 80s like the kind of uh, cultural movements that I that got me going still we had a bit of hippie stuff going on and then you had that kind of punk vibe and these guys seem to kind of combine the two things together and I just I was these sort of charismatic funny wild and also just that sort of 
don't give a shit attitude. I um, you know, I somehow got off on that, and that got me hooked. Was there a part of you back then that was? Were you rebelling against anything at home? Was there something about living in the UK that just didn't feel right, or was it just, yeah, let's go have an adventure? And oh, this is this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I was a I was a slightly you know, difficult adolescent, I suppose. I misbehaved a fair bit. I don't know what, how one would, uh, I don't know how to justify that. But no, it was more of a a pull rather than a push. You know, people talk about pull and push factors. It wasn't like I was running away from anything in particular. It was just had such a good time in India. And yeah, and then I ended up. I went to India every year, sometimes for six months, sometimes for a year, for for the next thirty odd years or whatever, until COVID put the kibosh on it. Yeah, crazy. Are you are you quite mathematically inclined? I've always heard that lingu- linguistics requires a pretty left brain mathematical. I I approach. am yes, Gavin. Yeah, I, I did maths and physics and Latin as my kind of high school. School oh, before I did Sanskrit. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm quite a fan of Wade Davis. I imagine you're familiar with him. He, the, I, he talks about the the extinction of language. You know, the, I, and I read today that in the early 2000s there were over 70 over 7000 different languages in the world and they expected that to decrease by as much as 90% by 2050 is is sanskrit and i i, I read in your in your bio old iranian are these languages that are part of that potentially leaving or are they pretty safe well, they're very different. Those two, they're like the opposite extremes of the of the historical yeah. record. Because old Iranian, there's only or old Persian. Well, I did a vest in an old Persian. Old Persian, there's only six hundred lines of it in existence, and that's like two and a half thousand years old. So, but Sanskrit, oh Sanskrit is not, definitely not going to die out, even though it's it's very old. It's the classical language of India, and of course, you know, particularly the moment with the kind of Hindu nationalist movement, they really promote it. So that's not going anywhere. But there are plenty of languages in India, like up in the mountains where we've hung out, the sort of uh, local dialects and stuff. I think, yeah, they are rapidly dying out. I mean, they used to say, I don't know what the latest is, they used to say there were 1,200 languages in India, something like that. But Wade Davis... 1,200 in India? Yeah, you mentioned Wade Davis, huge fan. Yeah, and I got got lucky to meet him a couple of times in India. He's amazing. Yeah, fantastic the navigator stuff and yeah. he's yeah he's 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 really amazing uh, Mallinson is best described as perhaps the only baronet to wear dreadlocks back <laughs> to your dreadlocks what is a baronet <laughs> oh god here we go a baronet is is a inherited english title so i oh. i need I, so i get to call myself sir if i want to i have a lot of titles gavin it's crazy we, we might get on to i'm also my hunt i'm professor i don't know which what order they should go in doctor yeah, crazy. Um, but that one is that one's achieved by doing nothing at all. Which actually, these days, nowadays, they, the politicians here just give titles to their their mates and their cronies and the people who give them money. So I think it's actually nowadays the most honourable way to get one. I used to think it was a bit ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing's pretty ridiculous. But but yeah, so I get to call myself Sir James Mallinson if I want to, and I don't. It doesn't happen very often. And in fact, all that all that seems to result from it is a lot of chaos when I try and check in at the airport because my passport's a mess. so something i found quite interesting as i was reading about all this you know on the one hand you've got jim mallinson sadhu or a yogi you know you go to india you spend months at a time with a small bag and a blanket and living it seems to me 
a very simple life. You're, you're living with the, the holy men and you're kind of a vagabond, I guess. I don't know if that's the right, right term. Yeah, fair enough. But... On, on the, on the other side, you, you've authored nine books. You're, you're the world renowned expert on, uh, on Hatha yoga and its origins, which was also fascinating. You're reading texts that are still around from, I think one of them was 1100, uh, or earlier, maybe uh, those don't. How do you mesh these two? And the the are are the yogis doing this as well? Or are they doing something in there at night where <laughs> that we don't know about? I mean, it's a very you're you're almost living in two completely different worlds, at yeah. least from my perspective. No, you're right. It's, it's absolutely right. It's two completely different worlds. But I think I need the two to. I couldn't do one on its own. You see what I mean? The the sadhu life. Uh, a, it was never feasible for me to completely commit to being a you know a Hindu yogi. Not not least because I've had the luck, been lucky enough to have the love of a good woman for more than thirty years, and part of that world <laughs> renouncing all the, all those kind of pleasures. Um, and so I always sustained it with academic inquiry, you know, trying to understand where these guys have come from, what what's going on, what are they doing, and then vice versa. Mm-hmm. The academic stuff would be too dry. I mean, people, there are there are famous scholars in my field. You never even went to India, you know. They're just reading the texts, and I, that could never be me. You know, I had to have the the living the, the the living world that fascinates me in order to sustain me through, you know, reading old manuscripts for hours and hours on end and so forth. So yeah, the two things kind of balance each other nicely. Is the transition for you quite simple? You know, for for me, for just this, I haven't I haven't lived in your world at all. But you know, right now I'm on vacation, which I've never really done in my life. I've always kind of lived as if you know your your life should be something you just want to do. You don't need to go on vacation, but I've been building this house and working like a dog for quite a long time. And I just needed to get away, get away from the house, get away from the build, spend time with the family. But it's hard for me to be here. It's hard for me to relax. I would imagine, you know, if you're home in the UK, you're with your kids, you're with your wife, you're you're wrapped up in the things you do at home, uh, writing books and being an academic and getting funding and grants and all these things. And then you go back and you're a sadhu. Is that, are you just there? Do you pop into it? And where I'm going with this is with flying. It's it's often hard. I think what we love about flying is to be present, right? But, and it forces us to be present. That's hard to do, at least for me. I think for a lot of people to be present is is tough. No, I agree. The transition, I mean, it got got easier over the years, but it's pretty difficult. I will normally find it more difficult coming back from India and then going back to normal life in the UK, but it got easier over the years. And I, I, I'm the same with flying as well. I don't know about you, but like if I've you know if I've had a, if I've had a layoff for a few months, I feel like a beginner. In fact, I can't quite even believe oh, I'm, yeah. I'm doing it. I'm like, what? I fly that crazy thing. It's I'm very uncomfortable. Which I, yeah, I, but I think that's a good thing, isn't it? I think that's I'm, I always find it amazing these guys. And you interviewed I can't remember his name, but some brilliant uh, alpine triangle guy who goes, goes out six. Alex Roby. Alex Roby. And then there are mm-hmm. others. What's, what's his name? Danini, didn't he? You know, he, when he was the, the dad. Uh, yeah, he's Luca. Is he Luca? Is the dad? Yeah, yeah. And he yep. would just, you know, just come out of his hot, his hotel job and then go and win World Cup. Or just win. For me, it takes me yeah. a few days, kind of transition, just to get into it again. Which I think for me mm. is necessary, kind of mentally and for safety and so forth. You know, I think it's probably a 
a good safety mechanism to to be daunted by that. But yeah, I guess it's the same. Yeah, it, it takes a while to transition between the two worlds. But congratulations on managing to take some time off. Yeah, no, but like I said, it's 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 not easy for me. I, I I'm one of these people. I like to get things done. I, I like to say. you know I like to accomplish things, and I feel like and I keep telling I'm accomplishing a lot. I'm spending time with my family. That's all I came down here to do. I should just do that. But it's oh, it's did tricky. You, did you got <laughs> a wing with you or a kite kite board? Or I brought I brought my tandem, which I. I got around the time I met you. I've never been a tandem pilot. I've never done it commercially, but I wanted to fly my daughter down here and we went for a flight the other day and that was, that was a blast. Very uncomfortable because I'm not a tandem pilot. You know, we were way, way, way underweight. I wouldn't say it was very natural because I was trying to act very natural with my daughters, but you know, you've got, when you're flying your family, (laughs) I found it very uncomfortable for me just uh, just being overly cautious, I guess. Which is how old is your daughter? Thing. She's five. Right. She's you, just turning. You get one of those little small harnesses you strap on the solo. That makes it a bit easier. That's why I used to do. I'm going to do that now. I I shouldn't have a tandem. It's I should just get a slightly bigger wing. So yeah, um, <laughs> that's that's the way forward for sure. We had no penetration. If there was any wind, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> how much of your own? Uh, you know your your studies of of hatha yoga and history and meditation and transcendental meditation how much of these i i also read that you don't go you don't go to a studio and practice yoga you never have uh but how much of your life is is participating in meditation yoga how big of a factors are these outside of the academic world for just you personally I probably shouldn't make this too public, Gavin, but here I am on your mind. You maybe maybe there's not so much crossover, like you say, compartmentalized lives. I don't know how many of my kind of yoga colleagues and students and so forth will be listening, but I don't. Not much. I don't meditate really? a great deal. I mean, for me, it was more always the lifestyle. I mean, I've I've done a lot of yoga I've, over the years, and I've mastered most of the weird techniques that I've read about and, and published about in these old manuscripts and so forth. But nowadays, you know, I do maybe 20 minutes a day. If that, at the moment, I've been a bit slack recently. Actually, I put my arm out. I think I've got tennis elbows. So I'm not doing the postures so much. And I just uh, sit sit for a bit. But I'm not super dedicated. For me, it's always been more about the whole sort of lifestyle. Uh, and that, mm. that the life of the yogis. And I, the reason I got into, in particular into studying yoga was it was the one aspect of that world I've been living in in India that was well represented in Sanskrit texts. Because you were asking, like, you know, do the sadhus and the yogis, do they, are they also scholars, I think, was the implication of your question. Actually, quite the opposite. They, they, you know, they think that the sort of stuff I do is a complete waste of time, that reading books is a waste of time, and that all you've got to do is live your live your life and, and do your yoga and, and, and so forth. Um, so I guess I subscribe more to that. But to be honest, Gavin, I've, I'm kind of, it's, it actually feels slightly remote, the whole world, that whole world to me at the moment, because of my guru dying in, 2019 which is why I chopped my hair and then COVID I haven't really lived in that I mean I'm in touch with people but I haven't lived in that world now for nearly five years I guess yeah, four and a half years. what is Kiwi used to wear a shirt that said I, I am not your guru uh, <laughs> what 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 does that mean having a guru what, what did that relationship look look like what was it yeah I guess it, it sounds sounds weird to some people they, they think it means you know just completely giving yourself over and uh, like being brainwashed and, and so forth but it's it can be that you can you know you can commit like that if you want but it's more 
being you're being sort of brought into a, a, a tradition, a lineage of, of yogis or whatever. So by being initiated, and I was initiated, I didn't even know, realize we, I was being initiated with my wife in, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. It was 1992 at one of these big Kumbh Mela festivals, which Kiwi used to come to actually. Mm. Kiwi came to two or three. He was, uh, yeah, got some funny stories about that. Like, I mean, it's the biggest gathering of people in the world. And he, he turned up one day and couldn't find us. And so, found some camp some people looked after him he spent the night and the next morning he got up and said no typical kiwi took a huge dose of acid and then found us within about two hours he was just led to you <laughs> yeah 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 but there's one of those festivals when we first hang out with our guru who's very sort of charismatic guy i don't know if you've seen the movie i made with um uh dominic west called west meets East. no i just i just i'll need a link to that because i read about it today and i wanted yeah. to ask you about dominic but uh yeah 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 it was they it was because it was broadcast on various channels but i think and they said so they were quite careful i think you can now watch it on youtube anyway so i can give you a ah, cool. link um but so he you'll, you'll you'll meet my guru if you watch that he's a very charismatic good fun guy and he sort of took us off in the middle of the night and initiated us on the banks of the river. And we really didn't know what's going on at the time. But that then means you're part of this whole extended family um, and, and part of this, this huge lineage of hundreds of thousands of yogis and stuff all over India. So it's great. It means, you know, I can turn up anywhere in India and just show my credentials or say a few words and I'll be looked after. Mm. So that, and in fact, that's one of the, you know, the, I think with it ties in with flying, actually. One of the things I love about flying, I love traveling and seeing new things going new places you know so there's nothing i like more than a good cross-country flight where you're going in a new route you know it doesn't happen very often these days but mm. that's what i particularly like in flying as well is, is doing new things that i haven't done before uh, and same in india so that facilitates so being part of that network facilitates being able you know just to turn up at any kind of temple town or pilgrimage place or something and you're part of the gang and you can be looked after we we mentioned Kiwi. How much your journey or being with sadhus or this living as a vagabond, uh, exploring this lifestyle, does that involve? Do the sadhus or does it involve a lot of drug use? Does it involve a lot of hallucinogenics, or is it mostly just weed? I mean, I know they smoke a lot of weed, but there is that. Has that been a, a critical part of your critical thinking? <laughs> maybe it's damaged my critical thinking i don't know I smoke plenty of weed with them yeah no they yeah it's, it's a good point because people think of india as like the um you know it's a very sort of psychedelic place and so forth but no there's not a lot it's not not like you know wade davis's books is it uh one river isn't it mm -hmm. where he he follows in the footsteps of uh, what's his name evans schultz and they're you know in in south america there are thousands and thousands of different combinations of plants and different psychedelics and so forth in india they don't really take psychedelics actually traditionally i mean there is this so people might argue slightly against it and there's this notion of soma which is three or four thousand years old but everyone's forgotten what it is no one's doing that and in fact as you as you alluded to it's mainly the sadhus are just sitting around smoking dope and the interesting thing about that is that the smoking part of it is a, a new arrival in India as well. It came, really? you know, like everywhere else, came from the New World in around 1600. So, so when someone like Kiwi turns up though with a pocket full of acid, a lot of the sardines are quite keen, to be honest. They're they're interested. They're yeah. interested. You know, they'll take it. They'll take it, but it's not kind of a part of the of the culture. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Tell me about dissolving your mind. I have that in quotes. I read read an article that you talked about dissolving your mind. 
with that. I guess that's one of the various different ways of describing, you know, the final state of yoga, if you accomplish it properly. You know, like samadhi, you'll hear, hear the term samadhi, and that's a, a liar, the Sanskrit word for di- di- dissolving the mind is liar. And so you find that in texts quite a lot. And normally, it just seems to be the idea of a, a state of kind of no fluctuations of the mind. So you kind of achieve a, a state of, of no thought, really, but it's said to be blissful at the same time. So is this different than the I've always been told with meditation, you're you're looking at a ticker tape in a sense of your thoughts and you're just letting them go. And that's you know, you're not trying to have nothing. You're just okay, fine, let it go. Okay, fine. Yeah, that would be a sort of Buddhist mindfulness approach where you know Buddhism understands there not to be any self, any permanent uh, aspect of reality. And so it's just a sequence of moments, yeah, and you just accept each one and let it go. Whereas most Hindu traditions aren't like that, and so they do think that there's a there's a um, you know a, a, an ultimate reality to our existence, to individual existence, and the most common concept of the kind of the final state of yoga is recognizing that your individual self is the same as the ultimate self of the universe, and if you can realize that identity, then that's you know that's enlightenment or samadhi or however it's termed. There are various different terms for it. Yeah. Mental health, this seems to be uh, a growing topic uh, these days, and it's also a big one in flying. There there seems to be quite a bit of mental health. There's certainly anxiousness and depression is prevalent in in our community. Is this headlines or is this something, do you feel like mental health is declining around the world for various reasons well i don't know i wouldn't i can't you know i'm no no real expert on that that sort of thing but i can't imagine that our kids growing up looking at their smartphones all day long is going to be much good for mental health Mm. and looking at other people but i think also you've related it to flying and i haven't really you probably thought about this more than i do but i think it's a there are some particular character types that are attracted to flying and some of them probably are a bit depressive as well you know a bit I don't know. There's like a few. I'm not going to name any names. Yeah, there's yeah, a few, yeah. few brilliant pilots that come to mind who are also quite sort of dour and uh, you know not particularly sparky. Mm. Uh, but there's plenty of others of, of all sorts. But yeah, um, I, I imagine there's quite a lot of UK pilots at the moment with pretty poor. Yeah, I understand <laughs> you're having some some pretty rotten weather. It's appalling. As I said, right now we've got the first named storm of the of the year outside Storm Anthony. We've got 50 mile an hour winds. Yeah, it's been appalling. I've been lucky actually. I managed to have a few good flights. I've just somehow got you know timed it well and got out and had some good ones. But it's I think it's I still I haven't looked at the numbers, but it must be the worst year for many many years. Mm, yeah, that's I've, I've been hearing that from. I'm on some groups. I'm on some, on some groups with the keen. You know, we got one called Size Matters uh, for about a dozen of us who are keen cross country pilots around here, and everyone's very glum. It's like, <laughs> We've basically written off the, the season already. <laughs> this is the problem with yeah, putting so too much weight into flying, from, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We've got to have an escape. Yeah, you need other things going on if you live here. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it can be. It can be tough. I've I've, I've gone down that path quite a lot. Uh, I can't remember if we opened up with this, but you're an endologist. I had to look that up, and I I, I wrote I read somewhere that you even have a hard time describing what that means. But it's the academic study of the history and cultures, languages, and literature 
of the Indian subcontinent. So I, 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 I bring that up only because I feel like, you know, you've spent most of your life really studying culture, language, in a really very different way of living other than Western culture and, and how we're, uh, how most of us live in, in Western society without having to have spent the kind of time you have in academics and studying it and living with the sadhus and living with, you know, with a blanket and a small bag all these years, what are some things you can impart to me and the audience about what you've learned that would be helpful in our day-to-day life and what what are the what what are you teaching your kids where where do you want your tige, your kids to go with your what you've learned you're putting me on the spot i know I, think, I feel like i feel like i've got i should get kiwi's t-shirt <laughs> i am not a I, I tell you my 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 friends and my wife well not my wife not so much but my friends for years have been saying jim you've got to set yourself up as a guru i'm in the perfect position i really could as, as you know you read my bio yes. if i want but it's really not my my thing and i'm you know i don't want to i'm not i've never never been one for telling other people how to live their lives i think we all have to muddle through our our own the what reality throws at us um so I don't know. What have I learned? I, what I have learned is if you stick at anything for long enough, you get good at it, don't you? Mm. you that's that's one thing I, 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 well, I try and get my kids off the screens and I try and get them to do stuff that they're interested in and, and stick at it um, and just just keep going with it. Oh, other life lessons. I know it's terrible. You, By accident, I've, I've found myself in this position of responsibility and people think I must have it all worked out, but I haven't, Gavin. I haven't. And I've had some very good, exciting and interesting life along the way but i still puzzled most of the time i'm still like what the hell's going on well, i think you know, that, I I, that's actually I think, great to I hear once, got, <laughs> <laughs> once you've got the answer you know you're enlightened aren't you that's right and then you then i'll pick myself up as a guru you know? mm. then I, yeah. but uh i yeah I, I yeah i mean you you could probably you could tell me i'm sure from better life lessons than i no i don't I, I mean it's it's interesting at your time with the sadhus do they have something figured out that we don't well, that's another interesting thing. You know, they are, they live such different lives from us. You know, my guru would never give me like in specific life advice about how to live my life. They would just kind of, it's more thing. living exactly, do their thing, live by example, um, even though the example is not something you can follow unless you're fully committed. So they occupy this position in Indian society where they've renounced everything. They don't have a job. They don't have a family. They live off donations. Mm. And that sounds like they're beggars, but in fact, they're, they're valued. If, as long as they are, you know, as long as they do have some sort of charisma or something to offer in terms of, uh, I mean, just that the, the, if they play their role in society correctly, then people give them money. People look after them. You know, people, people like having, we don't have something, we don't have anything like that in our society really anymore. Um, and so, yeah, they just kind of live, live their lives and it, that by being with them is seen as a blessing they're not actually telling you what to do or telling you how to they I mean, in some cases they will but that's it's almost frowned upon again i've told i was told by my guru you know sometimes bubbers would set themselves up at kumbamela sitting on a bed and preaching and then the others would come along and throw them off the bed and beat them up and say you should you mustn't do that you know you're not allowed to they call it have a phrase for it in, in hindi gyan you know basically telling everyone how it is and they don't like you to do that mm. you know you should just get up get on with your thing and and impress people like that rather than telling them what to do. 
Yeah. Is this what drove your interest initially in learning Hindi? Is it just so you could communicate better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was obsessed early on. I kind of just yeah. I taught myself. I mean, I was learning Sanskrit at the same time, and the two things are related. But I, I'm yeah. I was more kind of obsessed with with picking up Hindi. Yeah. Eddie's been. Learning. I've been with Eddie last week. He's been doing Hindi Duolingo. Really? Finally. Be catching up yeah, yeah ah nice that's fantastic yeah i, did, yeah, I mean, gotta get him on the yeah. show as well um okay one more on the spot kind of question and western we talked about western culture what would you say if you could pinpoint what what have we got wrong versus eastern culture versus and that's a massively generic general question but uh Again, thinking about your kids, obviously the phone is a, is a tough one, uh, brutal. But, but what you know, going forward in the next fifty years, what could you say that you know Western culture could really do an about face when it comes to X? Gosh, I when I wouldn't make that dichotomy, you know, that distinction between Western and Eastern culture. Mm. So, so strong. You know, people have this idea that the West is materialist and the East is spiritual and so forth. But there's plenty of materialists in India. You know, they're mm. some of the best merchants in the world. As we, I think half the CEOs of the tech companies in the states are all Indian, aren't they? Sure. It's not like they're very. Dry. So I wouldn't make. Yeah, I wouldn't make that distinction. In fact, that's so the the title of the movie I was telling him. It's a pun because I was with Dominic West, and so we go to. You know, the, the, so it's called West Meets East. All right, is the is the title, but that's a that's a play on a line from a, a Kipling poem, a poem by Rudyard Kipling, which is like East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. I.e., saying that there is this kind of different, you know, these two totally different cultures. But I wouldn't draw such a, a, a you know a big big line between the two. And what can I mean at the moment? To be honest, I don't know. Like my so my elder daughter's eighteen. You know, and at this age, I mean, she's going to come. We're all going to India in the winter, but so she will do a bit of bit of time there. But her friends and that people aren't so interested in going to India anymore. In fact, India's got a bit of a bad rep, I think, amongst the youth because of this Hindu nationalist government at the moment. You know, they're cracking down on Muslims. They're pretty oppressive, authoritarian. And so I'm, I'm maybe we need to teach India something at the mm. moment. You know, I, I don't, yeah, I yeah. I guess, sorry, you keep asking me these questions, and I'm kind of completely throwing them throwing them back at you but i don't think i i wouldn't you know i don't think it's like we've got a lot to learn from india or vice versa i think huh. in um, some ways that's encouraging mm. yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's not clearly you're not coming back to the uk going gosh i wish they could just do this or that or you know it's not maddening to you well i think there's a there's a you know richness of 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 life, the people in India, are, I think, but particularly in people that they're obviously much poorer, and then which means that they're—I mean, not all of them—but um, people are much more giving of their time and their person. You know, just going down the chai shop and hanging out can be a lot more entertaining than going down Starbucks or whatever mm. around here. You know, people. There's that. There's sort of personal interactions uh, that I find more invigorating. Yeah, there is maybe there's maybe there's that the kind of openness towards other people which we certainly in england we don't we don't have so much mm. the 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 journeys you've done to india over all these years are you always with your wife or are you alone or how how did how is that word and how did that work with the kids yeah well until the kids came along 
yeah, it was she was she was with me all the time. We had a wonderful life uh, where we would we we lived in this house actually quite near where I live now. We moved in in '95, which was the year I started flying, and uh, it was a farm rented farmhouse with a bunch of friends. And then in October we would say see ya, walk out the door and come back in April. We'd spend six months in in India, and then first daughter came along and my first uk win we had to make a decision what we're going to send them to we're going to live in india send them to school there or uk and we went for the uk i can't remember why and that's so my first winter back in the uk after 20 years was a real shock mm. totally like sitting through the mud and the rain um but uh, that was yeah that was the same time i started flying same time i started doing my phd in 95 so we did that yeah for about I guess it was until 2009, my daughter went to school. And that was that she was around about then or 2008 that we started Himalayan Sky Safaris because I've been going to beer for 10 years or something at that, that point. But, um, you know, I think you know how it is now with you now that you've got kids that can't, you can't just clear off them for six weeks. Mm-hmm. So part of the justification for Sky Safaris was earning some money you know mm. i've got to go i've got to go and earn a, you know i didn't have a formal academic job at that. it was a reason more than just fun yeah yeah i mean it was i mean i loved the idea and it was brilliant and when you know when john agreed to so eddie and i kind of thought it'd be cool and we thought oh, let's ask john how amazing it'd be to get and when he said yes it was like dream come true and off we went um so that was fantastic but that but part of the motivation was to do something more you know justifiable you know that you can explain it's all right Donnie. i'm not just going off having fun i'm actually going to come back with a few couple of thousand quid or something mm. so. were you part of the initial forays into pakistan as well no i've never well i've been to pakistan i've never been flying in pakistan oh, okay um, i yeah, i, I, I that every... came up this morning and when i was when i was looking into you i, I didn't know that eddie was a part of that i knew john was of course yeah, with his yeah. films and everything but i didn't know eddie was was well, Eddie had the original movie. I think I don't know when they did it. It was a long time ago, called Hypoxia. Yeah, where he went up. I mean, typically, I think he had he had the world altitude record at the time. He went up to about seven thousand seven hundred meters or something. But uh, typical Eddie didn't have the right instruments. So, you know, couldn't, couldn't prove it. Right. I think he had something that told him, but it was no. You know, probably probably couldn't get a track off it or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, they had some they had some crazy crazy trips, and that's so that's how. So I've I've known Eddie for years, but I didn't really know John. And Eddie and John were friends through that, and then so it was through them the three of us came together to do Himalayan Sky. Well, and when did that start? I think that must have been. I think it was. I was looking into it the other day. I think it was two thousand and seven. Yeah, because two thousand and six, I made a film with Kiko. I don't know if you saw that. Temples in the Clouds, yeah, yeah. flying around the beer. Yeah. Um, yeah, which has a bit of the Sadhu world in it. And then the following season, I think, was the first. Uh, Himalayan sky safari. Oh, so we were relatively when did early you come? in that. 2009 and then again. And yeah, yeah. Remember, I think in 2011, that's when we did the thing. You guys were, were starting the, the tandem Volbiv idea. Oh, yeah. And we, which I don't know if that got off the ground, but I don't know how far that went. But the remember, we brought Thayer Walker, the writer from outside, and he was the passenger. Oh, and Jody was the photographer. And we did that article. And I, I had my first kind of real incident there. I don't know if you, I think you were right there with me, but remember, I yeah, lost, yeah, lost my wing at 360. Yeah, and terrifying. Terrifying. And I just walked away. It was crazy. But that was a weird. One. We were all breaking it. We couldn't believe it when you reappeared. We're like, oh my God. Yeah, that was, you had the proper yeah, cascade, that was, didn't that you? That was pretty spooky. But uh, I still talk about that one. But yeah, that. I, well, anyway, so the the ninety five was the what was the catalyst? What how'd you get into flying? What how that all get? It was a going? friend of mine. 
good friend, really good old friend from school, rang up and said, hey, let's, you know, let's learn to paraglide. You can do it on the Isle of Wight, where we've always had a family. My dad was living at the time. And I said, brilliant, great, what's that? I had no idea. And I'm not, because I'm not like an adventure sports guy at all, not like you, you know, who's done every, all, this, all this kind of stuff. I'm definitely not an adrenaline junkie. You know, if I, for me, if I'm flying, if my heart rate goes up, it means something's gone wrong and I'm not, not, not enjoying it. I'm like, <laughs> we've got to keep, keep this relaxed. Anyway, he, and I was thinking about it actually the last couple of days because I was in the Isle of Wight. And uh, if, had I realised at the time that the flying school was the opposite end of the island, which isn't very far, but it's an hour's drive. So every time we went to fly, it was like a... I probably would have said, oh, no, hang on, that's not going to work out. But no, I kind of said, yeah, great, sign me up. And off we went. And I got totally hooked straight away. Mm. Um, Claudia, my wife, and Rupert, the other guy, you know, they got into it, but they kind of didn't didn't run with it at all. Whereas I was soon as I think it was as soon as I realised you could stay up. I mean, the first time my feet left the ground, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then as soon as I realised you could stay up and ridge store, and, and I was like, wow, this really is. And then when I found out you could go cross-country, um, and I think it's that, you know, you were asking earlier if I've got a mathematical brain. I have to some extent. And I think it's that the combination of sort of theory and then the, you know, being able, the, the kind of flow movement of flying, the two things together just work perfectly for me. Mm. And I, yeah, I didn't look back. I got totally hooked straight away. Huh. And the, back to the kind of the simplicity of being a yogi versus, I don't, I mean, I guess flying is quite simple, really, when it comes down to it. But are these transitions that your brain can, that your brain loves? Is it tricky? Is it? No, I, I get I get quite stressed on takeoff. Hmm. I mean, it's it's simple once you're in the air, isn't yeah. it? But there's a lot of bloody preparation, a lot of faffing about getting stuff ready. I'm not very good at that. I mean, I I like paragliding in that I'm not a mechanical person at all, and the fact you know you don't have to tweak it, where you just get it out of the bag and off you go. But then remembering how you know I don't like like I had a Cortel. Uh, Cannibal Two mm. for a year or two, but there's so many different things to click up, and it's so big. I was like, I can't cope with this anymore. I just know I want it simple on takeoff. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't like, I, I don't like being rushed. But yeah, once you're in the air, and it's all, it's then it's then it's simple, isn't it? Mm. That's just you haven't got much to do. You won the British 2006, so you were you were aggro about this for a while. You were you were competing. You were going for it. Yeah, yeah. No, I got I I. Got, I was so what happened? Yeah, two thousand. I did my first British nationals. I learned in ninety five. In those, that was a quite a quick progression. These days, people get good in a year or two, don't they? Yeah, it's the kids amazing. So, good. Yeah. so much more info out there. But I then went. We had a British nationals in Wales, and my first task. They said like a fifty k downwinder, but it's pretty strong wind, and I got quite near goal, and then I realised I wasn't going to get there because it was too crosswind to make it and I thought well sorry it's a great day I've only been flying an hour or two I'm going to keep going and I flew 135k 132k which at that point this is 2000 was a big flight mm. I mean the British record it wasn't the record British in the UK the British record I think was 170k Steve Ham but like no one flew further than that for about five years and here was me first first comp you guys everyone was like whoa what the, you know it's like kind of, just by yeah, just by staying in the air for five and a half hours and, uh, you know, made my name like that. So that then got me into doing some other comps. I did a, and then in Beard in 2003, there was a pre-PWC and I won the, yeah, I must have done that on a comp wing, mustn't I? Yeah, I think I did it on a on a AVAX RSE. And then, so that qualified me for the PWC. So I thought I'd do a season of PWC with, um, an 
and I was going around with Nick Grease, funny enough, hanging out with Nick Grease yeah. and Jamie yeah. Messenger. I mean, it's classic. It was such classic. fun. Classic. Oh, man. Yeah, hysterical, as you can imagine. Yeah. But the, the first the first leg was in Bassano, or what's the place behind it? Feltre. 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 And was that where Bill Belcourt threw his reserve and ended up in the fence? I don't remember that. Did, it was 2004. You... I don't recall that. Okay, all right. Was there a big, maybe... big gust front one day? It got canceled and everybody was in the air? Was that that year? No. Okay, different year. No. Okay. No, that rings a bell, but no, it wasn't that. Because we didn't fly until we had six. It was week-long comp, PwC, six days. No, it was terrible, but oh. didn't fly. Last day, last day, okay, and they said a regular task. I think it was Bassano. It was kind of out in the turn. And so this is my first PwC task. I'm stoked. And I got the, I think I just got the ABEX RSE, which is a proper comp wing, you know, in those days uncertified, all of that. And I got low quite early on with a group of pilots. And then I got out of this hole and a few, like quite a few people landed and there was just a lead gaggle in front of me. And I thought, right, I'm, I'm the nuts. You know, here I am, PwC. And I, this, this glider had trim tabs and speed bar. And so I let the trimmers full off, speed bar full on, and I'm cruising along this, you know, blasting along this ridge thing and reeling them in. And then suddenly big frontal and the whole thing just went berserk. I was on top of the wing. I was all over the place. And they were like virtually looping it. And, I, and then I looked down, and I, uh -oh, I'm not sorting this out. Didn't have much room through the reserve and then started thinking about trying to pull in the main, look down and go, oh no, I haven't got much time and, and hit the deck. Made, and I was incredibly lucky because it was a steep, steep mountainside with trees and rocks and then just a small patch of grass and i hit this patch of grass and like it's windy and i was like oh my god i'm all right <laughs> and, uh, and i then i kind of pack, I, I just got a mobile phone and i rang claudia claudia was out there and i told her what happened she's like funny hell and she came to get me and i I, met the, I did manage to injure myself walking down to the road. I think I, I tripped over onto the road and bashed my knee and everything. Anyway, I got back to the to the HQ that evening, and I, I, I think I think it was Akim Juice was the I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think he was the test pilot for Gradient. You know, he was the the, the factory pilot, and so I got talking to him and I said, uh, you know, so so what happened? And I, when I told him I'd let off the trim tabs and gone full speed by, he just looked at me like I was a complete moron. <laughs> I was like, what, you did both? <laughs> There's no manual coming with these uncertified. <laughs> right. but I didn't realize, I didn't know that that was a stupid thing to do. Really so fly at your own risk. <laughs> yeah. But I then realized, I mean, I that I got, but through that, I guess I got a minor fear injury, as you as you would call it. Mm. And I mean, not too bad. Uh, but I kind of realized then that for me, if I was going to do compete really seriously, it was, all or nothing. Mm. As I was saying before, you know, these guys who just fly a few days a year and do brilliantly in comps or these big crawls, I find that very impressive to be able to switch it on and off just like that. Mm. For me, I kind of, I felt that I needed to stay on top of it. And so I kind of eased off. I thought, well, I'm not going to be doing these, um, these, these big, you know, world, world cups and so forth. I mean, I did another couple of rounds, but didn't, didn't do well at all, but enjoyed myself. It was just a lot of fun hanging out with Nick and Jamie and the rest of them. I think Kriegel, I think Kriegel was just starting He's out. Getting going. So I can, say, I can say I did PWCs with Kriegel, but then I, uh, yeah, he, he got a little bit better than I did. He's gotten a little bit better than uh, yeah. everybody did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then I, so then I, but I kept doing the British, the only comps, like proper, proper comps I kept doing were the UK legs of the British nationals, okay. which when it's good, is just fantastic. We have one year, 2007, maybe, I can't remember. 
know, you know, had four amazing days, like hundred k tasks every day, and, and some of them landing back at the count. Anyway, it was just as you can imagine, fantastic. But too many years, the weather would just completely destroy it. Mm. Okay, so it wouldn't happen. And then after, I think it was about two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, the comps panel decided they wouldn't have UK legs anymore. They used to have one or two foreign ones, and then one in the UK, and they got rid of that. And I, I didn't like the foreign one. I got fed up. Also, I'd hate the Sit, you know, you go to the Northern Alps and sit in the rain for a week, and that would just mm. do my head. So I mm. all the waste of time. Um, but I, I would always commit. You know, I'd always go to the UK ones, and then they stopped it. And so that was when, with Hugh and Hugh Miller, and Jockey Sanderson, we got together and we we devised the North South Cup. We thought, look, there's got to be a way to have a decent competition in the UK. Uh, and so that's so the the way we make it work. Is that we don't call it? We don't call the venue until two days before. So we fix a weekend, and then lich. So everyone has to be prepared. One day's a travel day, and then we'll all meet online on Zoom or whatever on the on the Wednesday normally, or Tuesday or Wednesday. Check the weather forecast. Hugh's the main weather guru these days. He loves going through all the charts and everything. And then we'll call it. And yeah, we might go off to Scotland. We might go to Wales or something. Uh, the first, what's the first or second year we had it here, right here because I live at the foot of some pretty good small hills but you can go a long way when the when the conditions are right and so that's yeah that's kind of my competing these days mm. um that just sounds very brilliant important. i mean everybody i've talked to about the well you know jockey's super excited about everything he ever talks about so i'm not i'm not <laughs> sure he's the best gauge but when i've asked jockey about the north south cup he just he really lights up and, and russ and everybody i mean they just it just sounds fantastic and I, I'd love to come out and join it, join you guys for that. Yeah, well, you open invitation, Gavin, yeah. for sure. You and that's always in May, up. right? Well, yeah. Well, no, this year, funnily enough, we, it wasn't in May because Jockey was too busy with various oh, comps and stuff. Yeah. So we set it for July. But unusually, we've done it once or twice before. We we had to postpone the forecast. That was really bad. Yeah, you've had so what year. We've now got it the last weekend in August. So fingers crossed it will be all right and we'll get some. So we haven't done it this year. Ah, okay. Okay, so it's totally flexible. You just pick a weekend. Yeah, totally flexible. Oh, very yeah, yeah, I mean, and then quite a few people who were able to do the July one can't come, but it's thirty aside. I mean, it's 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 quite informal the whole thing. Like last time, was it the last one? And we we yeah, there's no GPS scoring. Uh, we just we go back to you way before your time, I imagine, Gavin. But we have a big map and we put pins on the board. Yeah, are you guys taking the, pictures of the turn points? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we don't we don't do the pictures thing, but we. We get everyone. So what we've got it was pretty close last year, and we get there's like red pins for the north and yellow pins for the south. Like whatever. It. Everyone has to go put their pin in the board, and then you know, jockey and I stand back and look at it and go, mm, "Who's won? Who, you know, who's who's done best?" And in fact, last year it was so close, we ended up having to get a bit of line and going around all the pins <laughs> and, and stretching it out, <laughs> working out whose line was strongest and uh, longest. And, yeah. Screw X contest, huh? you're doing it with yarn. <laughs> exactly it's, it's kind of yeah we're, you know we're trying to trying to take the tech out of it so say so that people like eddie can compete because right. you know they're not very <laughs> running their instruments <laughs> but we smashed records we've loads of times we've broken british records and stuff like that because if you get enough you know because all the all the best pilots like to take part um you know it's quite competitive to get a place although i often get accused of you know bribery and corruption and so forth but who gets chosen in the sound the old old boys club but yeah, you, you know how it is. If you throw enough good pilots, yeah. even onto a half, on a half decent day off the hill, then yeah, magic happens. Yeah, 
And then the, then the real crazy magic happens in the evening when you know jockey's doing because we was we as it's also now become the prize giving prize giving for the previous year's um, XC League. And so jockey does all of that, and then we have an auction as well, a charity auction. It's a lot of it's a one time basically that the you know the kind of top UK partners get together. Get together. Yeah, it's brilliant. That's great. Well, we're we're gonna go we're gonna go back to beer, but talking about magic, uh, I, I had to look this up embarrassingly, considering all the sailing I've done. But tell me about this Solent flight. You, you flew some enormous distance over the ocean, right? I have that. Ah, right? uh, yeah, yeah. I wonder. Actually, I put put this out there. I sometimes wonder if it's the longest ever. I'm sure. I've it never is, heard but... of anything longer than that. But I I would I... talk about it. But I would like to get your thoughts on. There, there have been a lot of uh, people reaching out to me in the last couple of years, seeing cloud streets at sea. You know, and I've spent a lot of time at sea, and I'm pretty convinced that wouldn't work. But it would. It is. It, it is an interesting phenomenon. You're not getting thermals off the water, obviously, but you're getting. I think if you're close enough to land, it, it is a pretty interesting. You know, you know, flying yeah. between the yeah. Hawaiian Islands, for example. You know, you They're see cloud streets. Yeah, there are you're, you're exactly you're right there it's just but it's yeah. just i can't imagine <laughs> pretty committing i don't know <laughs> i don't know if you ever you were probably again before your time but richard westgate did he ever cross your radar yes. yeah a brilliant brilliant uk pilot very sadly sadly died maybe because he was an airline pilot and they think it was through poisoning from the you know the, the air systems in the in the in the cockpit but Whoa. he had he had he was one of these real dreamers as well of kind of crazy flight. and he in this not long before he died, he was seriously talking about trying to fly across the channel, not the Solent. So it's 20 miles or something oh. using sea thermal cloud streets. I don't know. I mean, he was, he was, yeah, he was, a, a, if anyone was going to do it and if he thought it was feasible, there must've been some way of doing it, but I'm not sure if anyone's, anyone's ever, ever managed, but people, yeah, people do use sea thermals here occasionally, but it's normally in winter, isn't it? Spring. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So you have to have a, really yeah, unstable, very good lapse. Really. Yeah. Like that, but what I did, so I learned to fly on the Isle of Wight, and I grew up on the Isle of Wight, and we still got a family place down there. So it always been my dream to fly down there. And you used to be able to do it. So it's a small island off the south of the UK, with the strip of sea in between called the Solent. You know where you've got Southampton and Port's a big shipping channel. And the far west of it, there's actually quite a narrow channel. It's only maybe two kilometres, something like that. And people used to fly that quite regularly on hang gliders and then early paragliders. But then they there's a new airport, Bournemouth, uh, and they closed down the airspace. It's impossible to do that now. Mm. So the only way to do it is to the east, um, where it's then about six, six and a half kilometres wide, something like that. And also getting there is tricky. So what I had to do, and I tried a few times, but I would get to Portsmouth. You have to take it had to be a reasonable, a nice northerly, but not too strong, because you'd have to loop around um i could put i could put the link to the flight in the in the notes That'd be great. you have to loop around southampton airspace and then come back into portsmouth which is where you then decide right am i going to go for this or not and I, I think i've done it two or three times got there and thought no i didn't have the bottle it didn't look right uh and i so this time it was a couple of years ago i guess maybe three years ago maybe more time has gone weird hasn't it with covid yeah. maybe four years ago anyway and i've done it once again since but ah. So all, all the way, all the way around along, looking at the island, you can see cumulus over it, thinking, okay, it still works. Because the the worry is the sea breeze, and this the time that I did it first, I got to Portsmouth, and I'm I can see that the clouds are dissipating, but I'm at about three and a half thousand feet, and I had a reasonable tailwind, and I thought, 
so you know it's now or never. I've got to go for it. I go for it. And I, but having said that, I wasn't very well prepared. Didn't have a radio. Didn't have a life jacket. Yeah. But it was all a bit 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 crazy. Um, but I thought this is this is looking good. And for about half of the half of the crossing, I was just like yeah, no problem. Easy, easy. And about halfway across, I hit the sea breeze. So my glide went from probably 15 to 1 or something, a bit of a tailwind, reasonably buoyant air to, I don't know, probably 4 or 5 oh, to 1. Oh, God. And they're like, shit. <laughs> Spinning up in my harness. You know, you know how it is when you, you – the, the, yeah, the thing you don't you want to do. Want, the thing you shouldn't do like, is yeah. what you're now doing yeah. and you can't help but not do yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> and that, 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 bit, that period was only a couple of minutes where I wasn't certain. But I was looking down, looking at boats I might be able to land on, that kind of thing. As I say, it's a big shipping lane. Um, but then then I realized I was going to make it. But I only got, I only had 500 feet when I got to Ooh, the other side. Oh, that's getting pretty tight. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah, and I think it was six and a half kilometers. I wonder, you know, if anyone's done a thermic flight that's involved you know, that long a crossing. I've never heard of one. Yeah, that's... It would be possible. It would be possible. But yeah, yeah. Thing. That's pretty exciting. The, the second time I did it, I, man, I I was a bit more sensible. I managed to, well, I don't know if I was more sensible, luckier, but I connected the other side as well and was able to carry on thermally. And, yeah. Would, would you, if if you had everything perfectly planned, would you have a cutaway? Would you have a chase boat? I mean, we, what we don't want to do is have people listen to this start flying across the ocean. <laughs> uh, you know, wa- right, water yeah. tends no, to be a little hard. dangerous. Um, but I, would there be ways to mitigate some of the risk? You know, the the I've thought about this a little bit because the the worst thing is just if there's any waves at all whatsoever, you're in deep shit if you're in your gear. But I guess you could. Sure. And I guess chase chase boat with the radio. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like the IV over a lake or something. Yeah, yeah. It's not too rough. That'd be fine, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Must have been beautiful. It was. I was definitely screaming with joy when I realised I was going to make it. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, funnily enough, I wrote it up cross country, and it's going in this new book they've got coming. Oh, out. cool! I just saw. Yeah. I just saw Hughes' newsletter yesterday about that. That looks. Yeah. That looks really neat. Does that mean you've got a story in there as no, well? Then, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. I don't. No. Because he said I got sent a thing. The authors. I got two stories in there. I'm being very wicked. Privileged. Yeah. Really cool. No, I think all oh, that's more. More of that's before my time. You know, it's the, it's the legendary yeah. stuff, and I can't wait to read it. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, should be a good, good win to read. Speaking of just really memorable flights, I asked Debu about this as well. You've done a lot of flying in the biggest mountains in the world, and and beer is pretty special. Anything that's still just, oh, love to do that one again. I mean, the magic of flying is they're never the same, but any really memorable flights from the Himalaya that yeah, well, I mean, these as I haven't been there for a few years, and you know, things have progressed so much. So the really memorable flights that I've got, people are now doing, you know, doing the same thing, like flying to Manali. You did it with John, didn't yeah, you? I did. I mean, that's an amazing flight. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, but people are now doing that and back regularly. Yeah, I think. yeah. The first time I did that, that was just that was incredible. I mean, so often, and often it's not the the biggest or the longest flights that are the most memorable, is it? I mean, one of my first flights there was with um, with uh, Bob Drury and Rob Whittle. And just flying into the back with them, and I was really green. I mean, I'd only been flying two or three years at that point, and they kind of convinced me to follow them over the back into the map. And they were all prepared for, for camping out, and I and I bottled it. I said I didn't have any kit or anything, so I flew back flew back to beer. But I'll never forget that. I, um, I didn't realize beer had so much history. I was about to ask you a stupid question. You know who who kind of pioneered it? But I remember I had Larry Tudor on the show. 
and they used to have hang gliding comps there. He had this amazing story of they all took acid. It was, I, I can't remember if they'd gotten to goal and took acid or if it was a non-flyable day and they took acid and they were all driving down the mountain and the, 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 the driver had some, he had a little guy next to him who, because the brakes didn't work and the little guy would have to crawl down in a hole to activate the brakes and the brakes went out or something. And they're going down this mountain and everybody's on acid and having this amazing trip and Larry's tripping too, but at the same time still had some of his senses about him going, no, listen, this is super sketchy. <laughs> we don't need brakes in this freaking bus. You know, it, it was, it's a hysterical story, but I don't know if that was, I don't know what decade that was. Yeah, that was the 80s, I think. Yeah. I think that was in the 80s. I mean, so yeah, that, I beer think that's a long time. Yeah. Um, and then the first paragliders. I mean, I, I, because I, as I, I started flying 95, but that was when I started doing my PhD as well. So I was always kind of tied up in the autumn. So I didn't get there until 99 or 2000. So I felt like a bit of a late arrival. But even in those days, it was still like, you know, maximum 10 pilots on takeoff. Wow. Everyone knew each other. Really? You know, it was a tiny, a tiny little gang. You know, nowadays, I think last October, Eddie's saying probably four or 500 over the oh. course of the season. Yeah. Boy, that'd be a so chaotic launch. Quiet. I mean, it was it was a chaotic launch when I was there in 2009. And just the, I, that's one of the more stressful launches I've ever been on. Yeah, just because yeah. The, there's no wind. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of screwing up. <laughs> it's just, I don't want to watch this. I don't yeah. want to watch this. I just want to get off the hill. <laughs> yeah. I think they've, they've massively landscaped it. Oh, okay. Since they, they, last time I was there, they already done a bit. Mm. I think they've done more, so it should be, should be a bit easier. Mm. But in terms of memorable flights, there was one amazing flight with John, which was also written up in cross country, which he wrote up, I think. So I don't know if it's gone in the, in the, in the new book, but uh, I was, you know, as part of the whole, yogi spiritual trip there's a mountain there in the back to the northwest called Mani Mahesh Kailash and it's so Kailash you know you would have probably heard of Mount Kailash in Tibet but actually there are a few Indian mountains that have a good claim to be the original Mount Kailash and this other one might be it as well mm. um, that's a whole other long story anyway I'm determined to get there and or to get close up to it and so it was with um, with Eddie and John and Another guy called Dean Crosby, actually brilliant British pilot. And we camped out on the high, quite high up on the Daladar. You know, we'd flown out and bivied. And then the plan was the next day to take to take off early because often it's hot, difficult to get high on the on the main range later on in the day as the cloud comes in, as you, as you know. And so the plan was to take off early uh, and then go over the back to uh, Mani Mahesh, to this, this, this holy mountain. And yeah, we managed to do it. I it was looking a bit sketchy, but I was just like, again, it was a bit like the Isle of Wight flight. It's now or never. I'm never going to be in such a good position. So I just logged over, and only John followed me. Eddie and Dean were like, those guys are crazy, and we did get a bit flushed. And anyway, then had then had a really really amazing flight up to five and a half thousand meters, and got up pretty close to this holy mountain. And then then there's a lake at four thousand meters, which is a big pilgrimage place. In fact, John. John said he'd never seen it, and he, I got photos of it, and he was, I can't believe I'd not, I didn't notice it again. Anyway, we then flew on round and landed. I had the sketchiest landing of my whole life. I think it was cre- kissed the ground in this tiny little gorge above the town of Brummore, which is in a gorge itself, and the wind was just switching everywhere. But that was then. It was somewhere out of this town of Brummore, which is a long, you know, by road from Beer, it's about 10 or 12 hours or something like that. We got there. And, you know, a couple of hours flying, hour and a half. But I needed to go there for a research project I had on at the time. 
So we then spent a couple of days, because there's these amazing 7th century temples there, and we spent a couple of days, and I was looking around all of that, and then we got a, a cab back, which I was able to charge to my university research account. Nice. Fieldwork trip, of course. And then, and then uh, but you reminded me of that, because we were driving, the guy, the driver was lethal. He was like 50, he was probably 55, I think he was ex-military, but had been a taxi driver, he said, for 10 or 20 years. He just drove so fast, and I kept saying, I kept losing it with him in Hindi and would give him a load of grief and say that this is just ridiculous. Stop it. If you keep this up, I'm going to have to take over. Blah, blah, blah. You're going to kill us. And, uh, and then I, then I noticed that he was driving with, with one hand kind of tucked in his lap and he was changing gear with his right hand as well as, as well as steering. I said, what are you doing now? And uh, he said, he said, I thought, well, I thought if I drove with only one hand, I might drive a bit more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> some of the that I, i'm sure you've experienced way more than i have but some of the taxi rides i've taken in india are quite harrowing especially in the cities it's just how does this possibly yeah. work i mean in uh in lima peru as i say i remember the first time i really started traveling down to south america you can drive on these you know where there's there's three lanes and yet they've made 10 lanes out of it you know you're going Good God, they're so close to one another and so much speed. It's very impressive. Yeah. Well, people, yeah, because I've I actually found at the end of my last trip in 2019, was on my life, but the, that trip when I cut my hair, I had to give back my Jeep. I don't know if you remember my Jeep, I had that black, yeah. black car. Yeah. I put over 100,000 kilometers on that, but people used to, I had for 20 years, it's very sad to give it back. But my people would always say, you know, God, are you scared driving yourself? And I said, well, it's safer than letting someone else drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 for sure do you guys still have the house no i had to give that back as well in 2015 or 2016 the guy who owned it the landlord he retired and said he ah, took it off that was that was precious yeah that was fantastic that was yeah, amazing that was the best time of my life but the colonel's yeah. still there colonel's still there yeah. yeah and his son vikram taking over yeah i'm hoping as i say get out there next spring i think yeah, mm. yeah do, do you typically fly mm. Do you, well, you're out there for typically six months, but the do you mostly chase the spring now or the fall? And I mean, I know for the guiding, you always did the fall, but the you know for you personally. Well, I think I'm going to go back in spring. I mean, I think, and I maybe I'm more as I as I say, Gavin. It's kind of you know it's been three or four years since mm. I was there, so it's a very weird time for me. Um, but I probably would prefer to go in spring these days. It's quieter, isn't it? You mm. know, it's less. You need to go for a long time. You don't. You know, things you go and you yeah, go in the autumn, a very short window of a month or whatever it is, but you can pr pretty guarantee that out of thirty days you'll get twenty eight days fine or something like that. Or in spring, you'll, there's a good chance you'll sit around for a week at some point without any decent flight. Mm. And a mm. good day will come along. But yeah, I, I'm hoping to get back there. Hopefully with Eddie actually next next spring. Are you guys going to keep guiding when that when it opens back up? I'm not. I'm too. You know, too busy. Too busy stuff but eddie's eddie's been but eddie i think he i don't know if he's still going to be doing sky safaris but he's now working with um foram i can't remember yeah. what that company's called, who, who work with jockey yeah yeah so he's still doing a bit in deb debu and antoine they're all, they're all doing their stuff yeah you know, and I have to bow out. all those years of, of guiding uh I, i've never guided i've always been nervous about that just i, I just trying to help other people i don't know it just makes me nervous especially in big mountains like you guys have done what, what are the uh, 
what one thing from guiding has been most important in your own flying, your own survival, your own risk management? Um, so it's a very good question. So wait, what did I learn from guiding? Um, I can't, I can't think of a good answer. I mean, I, I really enjoyed setting things up. That's the, I got, I get, I got bored of it after a while, to be honest. Mm. It became setting it, setting. I love. I don't know about you, but I like setting things up. I like new things, starting things up, and it was so exciting. It was so brilliant yeah. to do that, especially with John and and Eddie. You know, we're pretty good trio. We all had very complementary, different skills. I think, and uh, you know, amazing to fly with John. I, mean, I learned a lot from flying with John. Actually, yeah. I wouldn't. And I don't know if that wasn't necessarily because of the guiding, but the way you must have experienced this, the way he could, what he, he would call it, milking it, you know, fly super close to the trees, just soaring along ridges without turning. Yeah, I mean, we used to play around, that kind of stuff. You know, you could, you'd have to go back and pick up clients and then you would play, play around actually being quite competitive with each other sometimes and who could, uh, you know, who could, who could do the least turns and, in, the whole, in the whole process of guiding. But we had a lot of fun. What I really enjoyed as well was setting up the 360 camp. You know, that mm. was the sort of thing. I don't know if anyone's done anything similar anywhere else in the world, but India is just the perfect place to do it. And we had the, the Colonel's Guide. So people listening, just to explain what that was, was there was a, 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 a place very easy to top land about 50, it's only about 15K east of the billing takeoff. And in fact, it figures in the film. It's the first night, first place that Kiko and I stay in the film. We made Temples in the Clouds. And then, you know, no one was hanging out there. They, we gave it the name 360. Um, but what we could, what we would do with our clients when we're guiding is you get the colonel to go up with his guys and set up a camp. And then we'd fly in and, you know, we would land on the top and there'd be cups of tea waiting and a lovely, lovely campsite and they'd make beautiful dinner in the evening, you know, a bit of a party, a big bonfire. And, and then the next morning you take off and fly off and sometimes you go off in a different direction. Often everyone, you know, we what amazing thing about beard is people who were pretty inexperienced, hadn't done much flying, they'd still be, you know, you'd still be able to, uh, especially if you're doing one-on-one, -on -one, it's amazing what you can do one-on-one -on -one with um, with people who have not got much experience. And so often people would be quite, that they would be stoked enough just from that, that they'd want to fly back to Beard. But other times we would then, you know, lob over the back and maybe try to fly to Manali or whatever. Mm. But I think that, you know, that was really exciting being able to set that up, which was, a, I think, probably, probably unique. I don't know if anyone, any other guiding company in the world has managed to do that. Yeah. Maybe in the Alps, I suppose you could do stuff with huts and so forth. But also the thing about beard is the weather's so reliable. Yeah, that? yeah, that's the it's thing about the Alps is it's it's not reliable like this. I mean, especially in the fall. I mean, it was just so accessible and special to land there and then have the donkeys come up and everything set up. It was you know, it's a really cool way to get a bivy experience, having not have done any bivying, you know, or top landing yeah, for a lot of people. I think you know. Luxury bivy. Luxury bivy. Yeah, no. Nice. Yeah, but you that was where you fell out of the sky, wasn't yeah. it? And that wasn't even top just No, it was it. uh, you know, we had all top landed there and then it was, you know, relatively strongish. I don't know if I would think that these days, but it's it was to me back then. And and John and I took off again. And I was basically just you, you were just talking about learning and guiding. I mean, I hard to say now that was a long time ago, but I feel like I learned more from John following him around than anybody I've ever flown with, partially because I could never understand him. You know, when he would say things on the radio <laughs> and it was always just pure excitement and no words, just blah, 
he was so excited. And so you just had to kind of follow him. And like you say, I, I was a very pup pilot and, but it was, I just loved being able to, to follow him around the sky. And I don't, I think it was that trip that I did the trip with him to uh, Manali in the, in the back. And that was just mind blowing. And, but that day, yeah, we, we took off and I was just turning away from the hill. And you remember there was that gully to the left side coming up and something just hit me. I, I have no idea if this is the case, but I, we later learned that that wing, you know, that wing had been in the ocean a lot. Uh, I, I had done a lot of towing with that wing on the boat, and that was what it was the Chin Rebel, I think it was the sea, and I think it was radically out of trim. And so I, I like to think that that was part of it, but I don't know. But yeah, I, I took a big hit. And was kind of helicoptering, as I remember, and and then I hit the ground, and and you know I, I had this thought at one point I should throw my reserve, but it was quite windy, and then I panicked because I thought I'd get blown over the back, and mm. and and I kind of got it a little bit stable as I remember, but still very much in deep stall, and and hit one of those little flat you know terraced areas with was grass, and it was like landing like a kitten. It was just totally so obviously enough of the wing was i think at that point i was kind of be, you guys couldn't see me and so everybody just thought i must no, have just, no, you just the the yeah. and it was just i mean right before i hit i thought oh wow this is really gonna hurt and uh and then it didn't hurt at all so there was obviously enough wing i was probably so scared that i had the wing perfectly in deep stall i had my my hands way too low and and it was just holding there nicely and so yeah just chalk that one up to pure luck <laughs> yeah we were very very pleased well i think someone ran over there and you know said on the radio or something you were okay but yeah it looked, looked sketchy i remember yeah it was, it, yeah it was cool. and that big i mean we it was um, yeah I, I think i got like going back to the whole the, the the himalayan sky safari thing it was great and people had such wonderful experiences you know the, the looks on people's faces but it once we got to a point i mean eddie's always up for doing more crazy adventures but i was i kind of thought that I mean, with crazy adventures with the with the clients, you know, pushing it further and further. And I always, I was always trying to rein him in a bit. And also, I think we got to the limit of what we could do. And then, as I say, I like setting things up. And when it became more kind of management, and it felt like risk management. We had a few accidents. We had one lovely guy, poor guy, the Norwegian guy, got I killed. I was there. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was that year. It was that year. Of course. Yeah. Right. Um, so. After that, then it just becomes more, you become worried about it. A bit like you, what you were saying, you probably didn't, you know, you're just worrying about the clients and you know, this is paraglide. We know anyone can hit, get hit. It wasn't anyone's fault that Stein cra crashed, but it just became yeah. more stress than, than fun. Mm. Mm. I um, what, what percentage would you say to, has, back to 95, let's just take your life from 95 to today, what percentage of your life is, academics uh and study and writing and your life outside of flying versus flying god in recent years much less flying gavin than than before i mean yeah i haven't done much traveling for flying i mean i live in a, in a brilliant place for flying uh as i say in in marlborough downs it's kind of used to literally i can walk to a takeoff it takes me about 20 minutes 25 minutes got a short up up a hill uh, and the British hang gliding, paragliding records used to be used to be from there. Now, people, now that it's gone a bit further, but there's 
scope for about 260k or something so i will go out if it's if it's good you know i i go out as much as possible but this this season's been pretty terrible and i guess i haven't been to beer now for three or four years uh, hoping to get back out there for a good stint next spring as i keep saying i'm worried i'm going to get jinxed on that but yeah there's the north south cups so i'm a keen cross-country pilot through the season but again you know i've got family and things so quite often you have to grit your teeth grin and bear it and look, try not to look up at the sky because you know and nowadays of course you can bloody track everyone and all that's torture if you've got to be sitting on some boring zoom meeting isn't it mm. click over xcrt whatever it is and watch people having amazing flights <laughs> but i've managed I, i've been like i said this year i got out i've had three three really good flights um and that's kind of enough isn't it it keeps you keep, I, I find nowadays like but i almost feel the, if you get a really good one or two in at the beginning of the season, it's like, oh, shit, now I'm just going to be completely hooked all summer. Mm. You know, it's harder to ignore once you've had a bit of a, a fix like that, then you just keep wanting to, to to have it. But at the same time, as long as you keep getting one or two, three fixes of amazing flights a year, mm. maybe four or five, I guess, then then that's that's enough to sustain me. Mm. You've, you've heard this one on the show, but I love it. And so do, the, so do the listeners. If you could go back to your 50-hour self, which I'm assuming is 95 what would you what would you tell that let's see you were born in the 70s yeah what would you tell that 25 year old self if if you could if you could um you, well I, it sounds like an arrogant thing i don't know if anyone has said this in response to this question before but i, I the fact that i'm here touch wood i haven't broken anything um and i've had a lot of fun i've met some of my best friends you know it's still through flying like hugh eddie hugh's god godfather to one of my daughters you know i've met amazing people amazing friends and i haven't hurt myself i've had a lot of fun still having a lot of fun so i wouldn't change a thing to be honest perfect um, i don't regret you know when you see all these comp reports these days i like for i will follow them i kind of you know check in that's been a pwc in turkey i don't know what it looks like scared the pants off i tell you there's no I, I wouldn't want to do it. That doesn't, not my idea of fun. And in fact, I'm not a, I've been realizing more and more, I like to fly on my own. You know, mm. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I, you talk about getting into a flow state as well. So the whole gaggle flying is not my cup. Even when I go out with groups of friends here, I, I'm very, com I'm very competitive, which I think is partly the reason why I don't want to do competitions because you can't sort of guarantee you're going to win for a start. Mm. And it just kind of interferes with my head. And I find I have my much, so I've, I've gone away from the question, but I have my best flights when I'm on my own and I can get into that sort of flow state and it feels like everything's just, you know, everything's right. And if there's other people around, I'm comparing myself with them. And mm. Other Plenty of people here, that, in fact, the people who are super keen, you know, who will go to the takeoff the, net, the day before and in the hope of a good flight, you know, flying big groups and they all like, you know, being on radio and sticking together the whole way, but that's not my, not my thing. Um, but yeah, to go back to your question, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I think I think if I'd gone too professional on it as well, I would have got sick of it. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could be like a tandem guy doing tandems nonstop through the summer. I think I'd, be, I'd give up flying pretty quickly. I think finding that balance seems to be the key as the years go by. You know, we can't all. You, you just we're human. We can't have that itch and scratch that need and passion that we have when we first discover it that's not going to stick around you know we have to fly for yeah. different reasons and have to find the passion in other ways but 
Okay, I haven't done this. I'm kind of excited about this with you. I haven't done this in at least over 100 shows. Uh, if you listen to any of the early ones, you might remember this, but I used to do this, the Proust questionnaire. It just seemed appropriate with you. But it's interesting that I used to do it because I found you know these questions somewhere and they had they weren't the questions that are the actual Proust questionnaire. <laughs> I don't know where they came from. So this one has some of the real ones that were actually from Proust, uh, but not others. I've I've kind of thrown in a little a little mix. But so we'll take these and then I'll I'll give you back your time because I've I've held on to it for a long time here. But your favorite qualities in a man. Oh gosh, favorite qualities in a man. Uh, well, there's lots. My favourite quality, I mean, you know, reliability. I mean, I think one's friend, you know, being able to depend. I mean, that's almost the definition of a friend, isn't mm. it? Someone you can rely on, you know, if the shit hits the fan, you can give them a call and they'll mm. help you out. Someone who's there for you. Um, enthusiasm, you know, being up for stuff. Mm. Like, it's so great hanging out with Eddie. Like, I've been hanging out with Eddie this Eddie's just always up for doing the next thing. I mean, it always drives you mad, you know. Like, after a few days with him, I was exhausted in one evening. I just want to watch a bit of TV. And he's like, come on, let's go. I just want to warm up for the telly. Please. <laughs> Backhammer. Backhammer. Come on. Another bit. So of, much uh, energy. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, but, you know, it just makes life worth living, though. It makes life, mm. you know, it's doing stuff. Um, yeah, I guess. Is that it? Yeah. I, perfect. Yeah, Favorite qualities in a woman? I imagine you think about your wife when you think about this. It sounds like you have an amazing <laughs> relationship. Yeah, well, that's you know, you could I could get in trouble answering that question. <laughs> of course, <laughs> don't worry, nobody listens. <laughs> um, well, it's a, you've, you've kind of pinned me. I should say the same thing, shouldn't I? Mm. Yeah, I mean, without if I don't want to be sexist, yeah. I mean, being there's, I mean, there's an academic. I suppose, in a, in a, a woman in general is doing, you know, I've got a wife. If you, I'm thinking about my wife. She's also a mother. You know, she's extremely dependable and reliable and always there mm. for everyone in the family. Absolutely. Um, Maybe not so much up for crazy fun all the time like Eddie, and that's probably quite a good thing. Yes, great, great. Um, Back to balance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, it's kind of loyalty sounds a bit patronizing, but dependability, mm. you know, something just, I think that's, I think that's what you want in, in your, in your, everyone, everyone who's there, mm. everyone, everyone who's part of your circle. Yeah. Another one from the actual questionnaire your idea of happiness. And then the flip side, your idea of misery and happiness. I was a weird word, but joy. However, you like to think about happiness. Well, I wish you. I wish you'd prep me with these guys. Um, <laughs> There's better on the spot. Because <laughs> <laughs> you always ask another question, which I have prepped. I hope you're going to ask that final. Remember, question we can seeing. we we can edit. You can think about this. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I've got an answer for that. Hang on. What was it? What's what? A happiness. Well, they they kind of flip side in the like I mentioned earlier. I love new stuff. I get. Mm. You know, I think it's, you know, it's why I'm a researcher. I'm constantly trying to find out new stuff. And I like changing my mind. I like being like, have, you know, having to realize I was wrong. There's nothing more exciting than that. You know, there's nothing, mm. it's awful to be sort of fixed and certain of your opinions. There's nothing better. But even, you know, in my academic world or in, in life generally, like new stuff, having to re make, re reappraise the situation. So I like, I like change and stimulation. So that's my idea of, like my idea of, you know, someone has been at my happiest driving my Jeep in India to a new place, mm. whether it's a new flying site or a new temple in the middle of nowhere or something like that. For me, that's perfect happiness. And so the flip side is, man, I hated lockdown. There's people who say they like lockdown. And that, I really, you know, I like 
I need I need to get out there, be stimulated, be doing new stuff, and I, mm. yeah, because I I can't I don't believe these people who say oh, I love lockdown. It's great, but maybe the women maybe they maybe it's it's true. So yeah, for me, happiness is is um is development progression. You know, just new stimulation, mm. which is maybe not uh maybe it's, it could be conducive to poor mental health and that you constantly I mean I've always been like that in my school when I was really small when I was like four or five they sussed out that the one punishment that would really annoy me was make me sit on the stairs and with no books or anything and just have to look at the wall aren't you thankful that guys like us when we when we grew up because I was born in 72 that they didn't have ADD you know you couldn't be diagnosed no one was ADD back then but I spent half of my youth in the principal's office I mean I would if I was born in the 90s they would have put me on Zoloft or whatever that stuff is that yeah. I just I'm so thankful they didn't have that back then because <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't being fed sugar it wasn't my diet my mom was a great you know she used to she was a great cook and I had great food so it wasn't that, but I was just a kid behaving like a kid. And I think now it's just, oh, that kid's too hyped up. We're going to have to put him on something. I'm glad they didn't have that back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, least favorite word. Least favorite word. At the moment, I, you know, you, I, I don't like that, that the, the, the very common metaphor journey. When someone says you're on a journey, ah, and so I use that already a couple really, times. Shoot. <laughs> no, I know you. I think, well, I would have noticed. You see, I don't think you've used it in this interview. You know how, how you know where you've got to in your paragliding journey. I don't know why something like that. Really, Interesting. Uh, that's maybe a trivial, minor one, but it's kind of. A, I like it. Uh, good. Cliches I don't like. And here's where we'll end. Favorite word. Oh gosh. Favorite word. Wow. Did you really? Because I thought I listened to the early ones. And I no, these are different. These. Yeah. Like I said, right. I, I actually looked up the real Proust question. And this was part of, at least according to Wikipedia, this was these are the questions that were on that one. So they're very different than what I used to ask. Oh, man. I can't think of anything right now. My favorite word. Um, Could be in Hindi. <laughs> Ah, Hindi, yeah, there's some good Hindi. Yeah, but there mainly be square words and Hindi words. That's true, actually. There's lots of good Hindi words. Um, yeah, they normally be terms of abuse that my guru used to use that would make me laugh. Makluf. Mm. Um, or what else? Or oh, some place names. Uh, oh, you said place name. I thought of Denali. For some reason, yeah, I was thinking of a place called Dhinodhar, mm -hmm. which is somewhere I really like. I'd love to fly from a mountain in in southwest uh, Gujarat in in India. Mm. There's some nice place there, aren't there? It's beautiful. Yeah, Dhinodhar, that's a place that conjures up lovely images for me. Oh. But I could, I could have to a whole other podcast. I could talk to you about that. But what, what's it called? Uh, Dhinodhar. It's a volcano, a volcano in India where. Uh, a yogi meant to have stood on his head for 12 years in this really wild place, really remote in the far, far wow. south, well, far cool. west, west of Gujarat. Cool. Yeah. So is that it? You gonna don't you normally ask? Don't you normally ask some question about what's the craziest thing you've seen? Let's do that one. Sure. Yeah. You can have one prepared because this is a story I want to get out. Of. Yes. It's a short. Don't worry. It's not too long. But it's something I remembered the other day, and I think it was actually written up in a cross country years ago. So it would have been about two thousand and five. 
and this is not an India story. This is UK. In fact, we took off just from my house with um, Hugh Miller and Jerome Mopois. Mm. We had this fantastic flight. It was called Harvest. They did this fantastic spread in um, in cross country. It was this time of year, but it didn't look like it's because of the fog out there at the moment. It was a lovely golden harvest season, and we did a great cross country flight of about a hundred and twenty k or something. I can't remember up to the Malverns. Um, with Jerome just taking pictures all the way, and there were crop circles. So where I live is like the the capital of crop circles. There's lots of ancient monuments, and the hippies like oh, my local pub is a sort of where all the uh, very interesting gatherings of people throughout the summer. So you got these wonderful shots. Anyway, we were about a hundred k out, and Hugh was in front of me, and I think Jerome and I were behind, and I was looking at Hugh, and then suddenly this sailplane comes screaming in from the right, goes under Hugh loops him what and carries on i was like what what did i just see (laughs) Uh, what and then okay well then then and then we finished the flight and we we had you know hit shade whatever retrieve got on a train on a train back and this and a text message comes into hugh from richard westgate who i mentioned earlier whose brother guy westgate was the pilot was a um sailplane aerobatics pilot and so he, te- he uh, Richard texted to say, three paragliders, uh, southeast of Malvern, 3 p.m., my brother says hi. No way! <laughs> Are you kidding me? So what, did he just see you guys and do it, or was he tracking you on some kind of f no, or something? He, he must have just seen us. He must have, there was no tracking Holy in those days. Shit. Oh, this is a while ago. Okay. Yeah. But he, he would have known that his brother would you know, his brother... Richard was just like the you know the guru of um, cross country paragliding in the UK. Always wanted to know what people have been doing and stuff. So he knew that his brother would know who it had been, and so he must have already landed. Is you know, awesome. What? I, I, I thought I I, I could I thought I'd imagined it. I just see <laughs> this sailplane around and sketchy at all, or just total. Oh yeah, clearly he's got us. He, he's not just he. There's plenty of yeah, distance. Yeah, I mean, it was totally cool. Enough distance, enough margin, yeah. People ask that all the time, how sketchy it is flying with sailplanes. I just find it so... I've never had a situation ever with a sailplane that was... Cody Matank told a story on the show that was the funniest ever I'd ever heard. They were flying across. They were trying to make make it to Moab. So they're out in the middle of the Utah desert. And, you know, he's up there almost 18,000 feet. It's a big day. And he's freezing cold and shaking hands and his, you know, his, uh, his visor's icing up and it's, you know, it's 18,000 feet. It's, it's paragliding at 18,000. It's kind of sketchy and wild and cold and turbulent. And this sailplane, you know, just cruises at the cloud base, just goes by him. And he's thinking, you know, that guy's probably just listening to Bach. <laughs> just cruising along. Yeah. <laughs> But they seem to be, I don't know, I'm, I'm always very encouraged when I see sailplanes out there. You see a lot of them, of course, in the Alps, but it's always, I, think, I always think of it as a good sign. They're they're beautiful. Yeah, but I get a bit nervous at cloud base. Yes. Cloud. Yeah. I've seen a sailplane in the last half hour, like, kind of, because I sometimes go a little bit into that. Yeah, because they all radio each other, don't they? In fact, that reminds me of another, I'm going to, okay, one last thing. I'm, Excellent. This is a stupid thing. With Eddie, Crazy Eddie. Uh, we were a few years ago. We were in a thermal going up just off a hill near here, and so it's one of those lovely calls when you're opposite each other, and there's the two of you going up like that. And we're getting near cloud base, and Eddie shouts over, "Jim, let's hold this pattern and take it in." <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
you lunatic. And in no effing way I'm out of here. Do you? We'll just keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you left, Jim. That's good. That, that would be terrifying. Can you imagine? Yeah. You just wait a minute. I don't know where I am. I don't know where he is. <laughs> Excellent. Jim, what a treat. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for making the connection uh, come together. We're on different sides of the world right now, but I, I really appreciate it. That was a blast. Not at all. It's an honor. Thanks a lot for asking me on, Gavin. I hope you get to see you. Come and do the North-South Cup. Yeah, so, yeah. I'd love to. In late August, that might be tricky. I'll still be, still be down yeah. here, but I will join you guys one of these years. That'd be, that'd be a hoot. May next year it will be. Yeah. Perfect. I'll do that. All right. Thanks, bud. Thanks. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. A lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you